So I read today, and you all are aware of well, several things. This has been a dark week, and there has been, you know, obviously there was the shooting in Uvalde or Uvalde, uh, Texas yesterday that was just another horrific act. Um, we, without going into it for respect out of the privacy of the family, but we had a loss in our church fellowship. Um, you will find out more about that as well, but um, a, a, real, a real tragic loss. And so for now, rather than kind of blurt it all out there, um, if you would just, just be in prayer because the Father knows. And for the family's sake right now, I, I don't want to say any more than that. But with all this stuff going on, uh, you look around and I, I feel like I'm becoming a broken record on this. You know, it's like every time we gather and start to open the word, we start with the ugliness and the darkness and the blah, blah, blah. And, and it's, it's true, it is what it is. I want to read you a quote, however, that I thought was spot on related to what happened not only this week, but also the end of last week. This is a quote from a pastor and president of the National Hispanic Christian Leadership Conference. His name is Samuel Rodriguez. And he said... It was not an inanimate object that took the lives of the shoppers at the Buffalo, New York supermarket or the uh, students and teachers at the elementary school in Uvalde, Texas. It wasn't an inanimate object that did that. It was a young man filled with darkness. He said, any politicization of these tragedies can only be described and I agree with him, as morally reprehensible. To turn this into political firepower is ridiculous. He says, new laws, listen, will not push back the darkness. Political rhetoric will not push back the darkness. Divisive declarations will not push back the darkness. Only light will overcome darkness. I've shared with you before, the, the gaping problem in our country is not gun laws or the lack thereof, it's immorality and the expanse of it. It's the darkness, it's the lack of faith, the lack of belief, the lack of trusting in Jesus, the lack of value for human life, which is why we're seeing so much death. When life is not valued, death is the result. And that's what's going on. And it's what's so frustrating is you know it and I know it and we can raise our hands and say sin is the problem. Until we deal with sin, until we all come to the cross, this is not gonna get better. And it seems like no one's listening. Well, you'd be surprised how many people are listening to that very message. And I'll, I'll get there in a minute. But it's, it's been a dark week. But let's start right at the beginning again of John chapter 14, where Jesus says, how perfect are his words, do not let your heart be troubled. Do not let your heart be troubled. I know we talked about this on Sunday, but there are a couple things I want to add in to our, to our conversation and our discussion and our study of the word on Sunday. First off, understand these are not empty words or hallmark sentimentality. Jesus isn't just saying something to make them feel better in the moment. When he says, do not let your heart be troubled, these words are full and are followed by deep, rich valuable meaning that is, he gives us a way not to let our hearts be troubled. Jesus was never one just to speak to speak, off the cuff, throwing words out there to be heard. What he spoke was absolute truth. And I was thinking about this today, that James chapter two, verse 15 says, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and be filled and yet you do not give them what is necessary for the body? What use is that? Even so, he says, faith, if it has no works, is dead by itself. What is death but an empty shell? Jesus says, do not let your heart be troubled. And if he said that without the means or the how-to, if it was sentiment without supply or words without faith, it's just like saying, go, be warmed and filled without giving anybody anything. But that's not what he does. You know, if he just said to you and me, do not let your heart be troubled. And as we talked about Sunday, that's a command. 
That's a command. It's an imperative. Do not let your heart be troubled. You can control that. I can control that. And that all is well and good. But then I say, how? I want to control my emotions. I don't want my heart to be troubled. How am I supposed to do that? Well, Jesus never serves up empty words. Jesus immediately says, you believe in God, believe also in me. It starts with faith. How can I not let my heart be troubled in this darkness, in this dark week, in this dark world? Believe in God. Believe also in me. And you know what? Faith works. Faith works. Trust secures the heart. And then Jesus goes on to promise plenty of rooms in the Father's house that'll be ready for our arrival. As he goes on, he says, in my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. You know what that means? That means that Jesus assures us that we will reach our desired haven. I'm going to prepare a place for you. That's not empty. He's preparing a place because we're gonna be there. Take comfort in knowing that. Remember, remember when Jesus came to them when they were on the sea in the storm, middle of the Galilee at night, they couldn't see where they were going. The waves are crashing over the boat and here comes Jesus walking across the sea and it freaks them all out. They think it's a ghost first and he calls out to them. Remember what he says? Do not be afraid. He ends up getting in the boat and it says this in John 6, 21, they were willing to receive him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. And when we looked at that in John chapter six, I reminded you, immediately, that's like in the twinkling of an eye. The moment Jesus stepped in, he was received by faith into the boat. The moment he steps into the boat, they're at the shore. And that was a supernatural thing. It wasn't because they were floating or, or you know, hovering close to the shore. No, they were in the middle of the sea. The Bible's clear about that. But when Jesus got on board, boom, they were there. And I really think, it's just my opinion. This is not based on anything other than what I think when I read the scriptures and, and by faith. I really believe that the moment we do arrive, it's gonna be like we were never on rough seas. That the moment we're in the presence of Jesus, all of this stuff will just be gone. It'll just be gone. No one will even ask, wow, it was rough getting here, wasn't it? I don't think we'll even think about that. It'll be like it was over in a blip, in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye. Psalm 107 verse 29 says, he caused the storm to be still. It's a prophetic psalm. So that the waves of the sea were hushed. And then they were glad because they were quiet. So he guided them to their desired haven. Listen, listen to that again. He guided them to their desired haven. Why? Because they were glad and their hearts were quiet. And that's how it reads. They were glad because they were quiet, so he guided them. So it has to do, his guidance has to do with the gladness and the quietness. The problem is that the troubled heart is never quiet. In fact, Jake pointed out something today I thought, was, I thought was great, and I went and looked it up, and he was right. He said that word troubled in the Greek. You know what that is? That's disquieted. Do not let your heart be disquieted. The word in the Greek is terasesto, and it translates disquieted, restless, disturbed. Jesus says, don't let your heart be disquieted. Well, how do I do that? Isaiah 30, verse 15 says, thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in repentance and rest, you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. Listen to me. A strong faith is a quiet faith. A strong faith is a quiet faith. That is, it comes in quiet trust. Faith comes in the moment when I stop the disquiet. When I, by faith, cease to be disquieted in my heart. When by faith, I stop straining at the oars and I just receive him into the boat. And my heart is quiet. And in that quiet moment, he takes me to the shore. He leads me on through what would normally be more waves and more sea. He just gets me there, gets you there. 
How can I quietly trust in this disquieted, troubled world? Well, something else here. He's promised, it, he's promised that he's gonna come get us. Verse three, if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. I'm gonna come get you. So you don't have to worry about that. We don't even have to think about the directions to the clouds or which cloud he's gonna be on or what side of the planet that's gonna be when it happens. We don't have to worry about that. He is going to come receive, the word receive, paralambano. I'm gonna come receive you to myself. And we're gonna talk more about that on Sunday, but wow, to the lost or when we feel like we've just lost our way, Jesus says, I'm going to come get you. And then he gives these profound directions. And you know the way where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And we could call this the Jesus path to peace. The Jesus path to peace. We take the path, not that he took, but that he is we walk with him and by him and through him. We listen to him. He's the path of peace. He's the one who leads us through the troubles. Philippians 4, 6, you've heard a million times, hear it again, be anxious for nothing. It's a repeat of Jesus saying, do not let your heart be troubled. Be anxious for nothing. How? In everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds. How? In Christ Jesus, the Jesus path, the path to peace. By the way, before we move on, notice one more thing here in these opening words of chapter 14. Jesus is speaking to a group right? The 11 that are still around the table. Judas is out of there. The 11 around the table. He is talking to a group of guys. He should have said, do not let your hearts be troubled. But he said, do not let your heart be troubled. He speaks it in the singular he shouldn't have. But it's very clear to me that it's not hearts, it's heart. And he speaks individually to each one of the 11 disciples around the table and to each one of us, do not let your heart be troubled. It's not a collective command, it's a specific, personal, individual command. Do not let your heart be troubled. Well, verse seven going on, he says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. And it's another amazing divine declaration by Jesus. Just another in a series of them throughout the gospel of John where Jesus claims to be, I am. And now you've seen the father. You've seen him clearly. But listen, it's not just divine declaration. This is personal revelation. How so? Well, it's like Jesus saying, Look, guys, you've seen the Father. You've seen him in me. Think about it. My actions and my words and my life, you have had, to the disciples, you have had front row seats to the revelation of God on the earth. From now on, you have seen him. It's almost like he anticipates Philip's question. Philip hasn't even asked to see the Father yet, but Jesus has a sense, that's coming. And so he jumps out ahead and he says, you've seen the Father in me. John's gonna think about this for 50, 60 years and he's gonna come back and write in the first letter of John, chapter one, verse one, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the logos, and the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested, seen, experienced by us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that you may too have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. And this is the message we've heard from him and announce to you that God is light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. Jesus pushes back the darkness. There is no darkness in God. 
He pushes back and will, by the way, push back the darkness. But John later on writes, he declares exactly what Jesus was getting at in the upper room. Three and a half years of life and ministry together and they were right there with Jesus, watching Jesus, listening to Jesus, following Jesus and he now begins to draw on all their memories to bring this great truth to bear. If you'd known me, you would have known my father. From now on you know him and have seen him or as he earlier said in John 10 verse 30, I and the father are one. I and the father are one. You may recall he was nearly stoned for saying that. And the disciples were there and they heard him say it then and they had since then to continue to watch him and to see God in the flesh, God with us, the word made flesh dwelling among us. They were able to watch all of this and so now in verse seven, Jesus is saying, do you get it? Do you understand now what you've seen in me? Why now? Why, why spring this on them now on this Thursday night, Jesus, right before you're about to die, why not wait until after the resurrection? Okay, that'd be a good time to say I'm God. I mean, the proof is in the life, right? He walks in the room, by the way, remember what I did, it's, it's now. But he says it before the resurrection, the, the, the resurrection. Why? Because he's bringing something to bear. Jesus is processing something in all 11 of these guys and you know what it is? It's faith. It's faith. Any one of the 11 in that moment had the opportunity if they were paying attention, if they were willing to receive him into the boat that night, they had the opportunity to believe him. He's always given that opportunity. He's always putting that out there. The chance to come to faith. If you skip down to verse 29 of chapter 14, he says, now I have told you before it happens so that when it happens, you may believe. He's birthing faith. They could have believed that night. They didn't, but they would. They would when it happened. After it happened, they would then be able to piece it together and understand it and, and clarify that Jesus and the Father, wow, they really are one. So before the resurrection, Jesus was laying building blocks. He was preparing their faith. And this is what he's doing, by the way, in your life and mine right now. This is what he has been doing in however many years you've been on this planet. He has been building up your most holy faith, as Jude writes. He's been giving you, giving me the building blocks to have faith in him. And I'll tell you what, my faith is far greater now than it was 10 years ago, but it's not there yet. I am still faithless. I still have questions. I still have, you know, those troubled times. But the building blocks are being set into place and Jesus is working on our faith. Every Christmas, I, I listen to this song. At first, I didn't like that it was on the, the CD because again, it was an old hymn. And I was kind of tired of the old hymns. I'm like, why would you put an old hymn on a Christmas CD? I'm talking about Merry Christmas Bing, the Bing Crosby CD. This is a staple in my household at Christmas time. And the song is Faith of Our Fathers. And it even sounds like an old hymn. Faith of our, you know, the way they do it and everything. I used to not like it at all. Now I can't wait till it comes on. I love the song. And I love any song. In fact, when we sing, is it hymn of heaven? There's a line in it that talks about we're gonna be with the heroes of the faith. And every time I sing that line, I think, wow, can you imagine worshiping next to Paul, you know, worshiping there and, and there's Spurgeon right over there, you know? I can say, hey, hey, C.H., I was a preacher too, yeah. You know. If I had come first, you would have read my stuff, yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> the heroes of the faith, and you look at and you know what though? It's not faith of the fathers, faith of our fathers, it's faith in the Father. And that's what we need and that's what we are called to more than anything else. And that's what Jesus is doing. He is building up holy faith in the Father. But Philip says to him, verse eight, Lord, Show us the Father and it is enough for us. Just show us. And Philip, like Thomas before him, asked a question that I'm sure everyone else is thinking. Oh, I'm so glad Philip asked so that I don't look like an idiot, you know. Show us the Father and it's enough. That's all we need to see. And Jesus said to him, verse nine, have I been so long with you 
and you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Does it get any clearer than that? Does, does he need to restate that for us so that we understand a little better? Or is that a little too allegorical or metaphorical for you or for me? Come on, Philip, how long have I been with you? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And he goes on in verse 10 to say, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? This is how it works. It's not sentimentality. This is absolute, clear, unobstructed truth. The only thing that obstructs it is our brains. We think we gotta figure this one out and ponder this a little more. You don't have to ponder anything. It's straightforward and simple. I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And he continues, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. And he ties in those two corroborating, compelling witnesses of, of God in Christ, in him, the words and the works. The words and the works. The words which Jesus speaks and has spoken, the words that declare the Father's heart, and then the works which substantiate the words. So, so get that. The words declare the Father's heart, the intentions of God, the will and purposes of God. That's the words, or that's, yeah, the words and the works then that Jesus did, these are all works of God. These substantiate the words that he spoke. I and the Lord are one. I and the Father are one. Back in John chapter 10, verse 37, Jesus said, if I do not do the works of my Father, don't believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I and the Father. Look at what I've done. I think we got 2,000 years of religion that messes us up with stuff like that. He just did it and he said it and there was no messing around with it. And by the way, the word and the works, you know what we call that? Integrity. That's integrity. When words and works go hand in hand, when what I say and what I do are in agreement. That's tough. Especially tough when I sit up here every Sunday and Wednesday and I gotta say words and I gotta go home and try and live them. Or if I'm not gonna live them, make sure nobody sees me. That lacks integrity. It's, it's integrity that we need and integrity that we desire. I don't know if I've shared this with you all before, but when I was a kid, I lacked integrity. I think most kids play around with it anyway. But boy, I remember in junior high and high school, playing both sides, you know? I was an elder son at church. They all knew me that way. At school, I played a completely different role. What I said, what I did were completely different. And, that, and that's, you know, again, that's, I think the word for that is teenager. But Lacking integrity, and, and I got to a point in my life, I remember I was in college and I first started thinking, you know what, Lord, I don't wanna be known as someone who lacks integrity. I, I wanna have integrity. I wanna do what I say and I wanna say what I do and I want the two to be harmonious. Listen, Jesus spoke and acted not just in perfect harmony with himself, but in perfect harmony with the Father which is something none of us do. None of us are capable of that kind of perfect, absolute agreement, as in, again, I and the Father are one. Which is to say, Jesus couldn't say anything that the Father wouldn't say. Couldn't do anything that the Father wouldn't do because of the oneness of the complete harmony of Son and Father. And this is not modalism, I think I mentioned that to you when we started, John. Modalism is that idea that, that Jesus and, and Father and Spirit are actually just all one and there is no distinction. And, and that's not really what the Bible teaches. What the Bible teaches is the uniqueness of Jesus, the uniqueness of the Father, the uniqueness of the Spirit, three personalities, but yet one God. Modalism is man trying to figure it out and make it easier, but that's not what the Bible teaches. And if the Trinity continues to blow you away as it does me, well, A, get used to it, and B, 
It is what it is. And the fact that God is still beyond our comprehension, that's part of the deal. He's God and we're not. But this harmony between father and son, this absolute unity, when Philip says to Jesus, show us the father, Jesus could just as easily have replied, here's looking at you, Phil. I am the father. I am one with the father. Let me rephrase that. I and the father are one. He never says I am the father. He says, you're looking at the father in me. And there's that, that closeness, that unity. But, but now Jesus takes this whole idea of faith in the father, in the father to a farther place. <laughs> faith in the father, now he takes to a greater place and track with me on this, verse 12. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater than these he will do because I go to the Father. And it's a key verse for the faith movement. It's a key verse for prosperity gospel. It's a key verse for those who who would speak of of the, I don't know if I could call it like the power movement, that We should be doing greater works than Jesus did. So let's look at the works of Jesus and those we should be performing and doing and experiencing. First of all, let me answer this question. Jesus says, greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. And and my first question is, well, couldn't he just work these works supernaturally from heaven? Couldn't Jesus just look down from heaven and go, you know, healing, raising, power and he does doesn't he we pray and he responds we pray and God heals we ask and the Lord raises we seek him and he does these things so yes he he does look down from heaven Jesus is still active the spirit in the world is still active doing supernatural things but listen to me and and you gotta you gotta understand I hope you understand where I'm coming from here the greater works are not necessarily supernatural we want them to be supernatural you know I mean when you when you get a burger you say hey give me the works if you want the burger with everything on it you know I want the special sauce okay I think we overdo the supernatural sauce sometimes greater works are not necessarily supernatural first of all how did Jesus describe the works of God John six twenty nine. this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now, on the one hand, belief, faith is supernatural because God gives it to you. He pours in faith. There's a willing, there's an open heart. There's that moment where you say, Lord, if you're there and boom, he's gonna give you faith and faith is given by God and is from God and works in us from faith to faith. So there is a supernatural element to faith, but it's also very simple. It's believing and doing the works Stay with me, doing the works that Jesus did begins with faith, plain and simple. Not you have more faith, therefore you can do more powerful things than I can do. Not you are a more faithful person, which is seen in the gifts that you present and that guy's less, less you know, we, we end up making spiritual gifts a measure of righteousness and that is so unbiblical. That is just not the Lord. He doesn't say, if you're gifted with this gift, you're greater. In fact, I think what we already talked about, the greatness with the apostles and and what he said greatness really was found in, it's being in the lowest of the low servants. But we, in seeking to understand these things, doing the works that Jesus did and greater than these begins with faith, but for faith to live, it must be an active faith. And notice that the word he uses is works. You're going to do greater, than, greater things than these. Greater the works that I do, you're going to do. And you're going to do greater works. The word works is ergon, and it means deeds, doings, or labor. So let's get right down to it. What did Jesus do? Well, he walked on the water. Yes, and he washed their feet. But, but Jesus gave sight to the blind. Yes, he did. And he sought out a Samaritan woman and gave her hope. Jesus raised the dead, yes, and he redeemed the lost by dying on a cross. What were the works of Jesus? In fact, what are the greater works? 
I think we can define it with one word, the greater works. It's always the work of love. It's always the work of love, the greatest work. Well, listen to this. First Corinthians chapter 12. If you've got your Bible open and you want to flip over there quickly, first Corinthians chapter 12 at the very end of the chapter and then flowing into chapter 13. I'm going to start reading. So if you're going there, just get there quickly and follow along. First Corinthians 12 verse 31 where Paul after discussing the spiritual gifts and, and the clear and obvious power which by the way without saying much more about this 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is still in play there's nothing biblically that says the gifts of the spirit ceased so I believe this is still in play what Paul discusses here what he shares here what he shares in, in Romans 12 and Ephesians 4 and other places but then he says earnestly desire the greater gifts and I will show you a still more excellent way, greater even than the greater gifts. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gifts or the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and have all knowledge and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but I do not have love, I'm nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor and I surrender my body to be burned, but I do not have love, it profits me nothing. By the way, why would you do any of those things without love? Speak in the tongues of men and angels or, or use the gift of prophecy in all mysteries and move with all faith, move mountains and, and give my possessions to feed the poor and surrender my body to be burned. Why would you do all those things without love? And the word for that is pride. Because it feels good. It makes me look good. And it has happened and happens often that people given great gifts by the Lord misuse them because they feel so good for me. And the gifts were never intended for me. My gifts are intended for you. Your gifts are intended for me. Our gifts are intended as witnesses in the world and ministry in the fellowship. It's not about how it makes me feel or what I get out of it. That's doing it without love and he goes on and says, love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. If there are gifts of prophecy, guess what? they'll be done away with. You know why? Unnecessary. When we're with Jesus, we're not gonna need prophecy. We're with Jesus. What do we need to know about? He's right there. And we're with him and we're headed into eternity. We, it's gonna be completely unnecessary. He says that if, if, if there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. Now that doesn't mean we're gonna be blithering idiots. It just means we're not gonna need to learn more because everything we need is right there in Jesus. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. You know what the partial is? It's all the spiritual gifts. That's partial. That's not the pure end. That's not the perfect resolution. That's not the end result of our sanctification. It's partial. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. Did Paul just call the spiritual gifts childish? <laughs> For now we see in a mirror dimly, then face to face. Now I know in part, then I will know fully just as I have also been fully known. But now faith, hope, and love abide these three. Remember that for a few minutes from now. Faith, hope, and love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. Listen, natural or supernatural, the works of love are always the greater works. That's what we've been called to engage in, the works of love. Now, one last thing about the supernatural, we desire often, and some more than others, we desire an, to, to see and experience the supernatural. Right, I've, I've heard people pray for that, I just, I just wanna see more resurrections, and I wanna see more healings, and I wanna see this, that, or the other. You know why we desire that at all? It's because we were made for heaven. Let me say that one more time. We desire to experience supernatural things because we were made for heaven, 
not for here. You know how that plays out? It's Moses who saw things that you and I have never seen. Go back and read again the Exodus story. Look at what Moses saw with his eyes and experienced firsthand with God and how it changed him even physically. He saw all these fantastic, remarkable, amazing things and yet up on the mountain, what did he say? Exodus thirty-three, eighteen: I pray you, show me your glory. You just walked through the sea, bro. Show me your glory. You know why? Because the supernatural is never satisfactory. It's great in the moment. It's never enough. You always want more. I see this, I want to see that. I see that, I want to see the other. I want to go further and further in. I want to see God do the miraculous again and again, but it's never enough. Philip watched Jesus do all kinds of supernatural, amazing, miraculous things, and yet he has the gall to say, Lord, show us the Father. What have you spent three and a half years seeing? And I'm not picking on Moses or Philip. The point is, both of these two men, they didn't lack faith. They longed for heaven. They wanted to be in, they wanted what, would, what we will have in heaven. But mark this, we'll never get enough supernatural to satisfy us here on earth, ever. We will always want more. We will not be fully satisfied until we're settled into our rooms in the Father's house. And then, then we'll go, ah, then we'll know. As Paul wrote, then we'll be fully known. Now, someone among us might be thinking, okay, Rick, but if you're saying that the greater works are the work of love and we're gonna do greater than Jesus, how can we love greater than Jesus? How can we do anything greater than Jesus? who even is about to say in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends, and then he goes and lays down his life. I haven't done that. Is he calling me to that? Because I'll tell you what, me laying my life down for anyone isn't gonna do anyone any good. I'm not saying I'm unwilling, I'm just saying it's kind of a waste. Greater love has no one, so I can't outlove Jesus. I can't do greater than Jesus. Listen to me, the, the greater things promised here is both quantitative and qualitative. We will do, Jesus is saying, you will do greater things quantitatively and qualitatively than I do. Now maybe that doesn't help you at all, so let me put some explanation on that. The immediate measurable outcome of Jesus' ministry of the three and a half years of his earthly ministry, we can boil it down to this. A number, and a large number, in fact, 39 in the Gospels. More than that, that, that aren't even accounted for. In fact, John, at the end of his Gospel, will say all the libraries in the world couldn't hold all the things that he did. So we can say a massive number of, of miracles and healings and resurrections, every single one of which ended in death. That's wonderful Lazarus raised from the dead. He died again. I mean, unless you can produce Lazarus tonight, he died 2,000 years ago. The resurrection was awesome. It brought glory to Jesus, glory to God, but Lazarus would die again. And everyone that Jesus ever healed, everyone that he raised from the dead would die within that generation. Huh. And at the end of this earthly ministry of Jesus, the measurable outcome included 11 very fearful men, one betrayer, and a hodgepodge handful of disciples. But in Jesus' ministry, something was going on. We talked about this earlier today. Something was going on in Jesus' ministry that no one could see. There was, there was something being seeded into the world and into their lives that was unseen. He left and qualitatively, or no, no, quanti sorry, quantitatively, I always mess up those two. Quantitatively, numerically, we could say, Jesus left the earth and numerically within 10 days, 3,000 people were saved. They did greater than Jesus did in, that, in those terms. You understand me? Quantitatively, Jesus didn't see 3,000 saved in his ministry. Peter and the apostles saw 3,000 saved in their ministry, was, which was obviously an extension of Jesus. Don't misunderstand me. But when he says, you're gonna do greater things, 
Quantitatively, 3,000 were saved in Acts 2.41. That grew to 5,000 by Acts chapter 4, verse 4. And then in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, it says, the word of God kept on spreading and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. This massive movement. And by the way, in Acts chapter 6, they weren't even out of Jerusalem yet. They're still in the city and this massive wave of salvation is taking place after Jesus left. So quantitatively, they were already doing greater things than was seen in Jesus' ministry of three and a half years. Ultimately, multitudes are gonna join together and worship Jesus around the throne eternally. That's just one example of quantitative greatness, greater than what you see in the three and a half years of Jesus' ministry. He says you're gonna do greater things than these qualitatively as well. Now, how's that possible? The spread of faith, hope, and love, even in the darkness of this world, has been and will be immeasurable. And I wanna say this as a moment of hope here. Faith, hope, and love, this has been the basis of followers' lives for 2,000 years. This is, this is at the heart of, of, our, of our functioning. We function by faith and hope and love, and it is characteristically different than anything else in the world. This is the measure of the followers' life. So no matter how dark it gets, the world is still filled with followers of Jesus who qualitatively are filled with faith and hope and love. How can you say it's greater than Jesus? It's not greater than Jesus, but it's greater things than he did at that time in that limited amount of time. It was greater, spread out everywhere. And now all manner of people follow Jesus, trust Jesus, hope in Jesus, love like Jesus. Quantitatively and qualitatively, the church has done greater things than these. Are you with me? Give a nod if you agree, and if you disagree, the door's right there. <laughs> Verse 13, whatever you ask, he says, in my name, that I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Now, listen, with this, he's not giving us a religious valediction which is, I looked it up because I was trying to figure, what do you call the, the closing part of a letter? You know, your closing statement, closing farewell, if you will. And it's actually called a valediction. I didn't know that. When we say in Jesus' name, it was never meant. When he says, whatever you ask me, in my name, and now we say in Jesus' name constantly after every prayer, it was never meant to be sincerely yours, best regards, hugs and kisses, amen. When we say in Jesus' name, it's not the closure of a letter or a prayer. It's so much more. So when he says, ask anything in my name, okay, understand that the name is the nature. In Hebrew thought, that makes perfect sense, biblically. The name is the nature, it's the character. And we can look back. This is why we always pay attention to names as we're studying the Bible, because the name says something about the person and speaks to their nature and their quality and their, Jacob, heel catcher. You know, it, it said something about him, coming out of the womb, grabbing on to Esau's heel, wanting to be first, and ultimately he usurped him and became first. Heel catcher. The name is the nature. And to ask or pray in Jesus' name means that we pray in submission to his will, to his nature, to his desire, his purposes. That's, ask me anything in my name. You come to God the Father in the name of Jesus, you're coming in alignment with him. John said in 1 John 5, 14, this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, and we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. Look at chapter 15, verse seven. Jesus repeats this. He says, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Or in chapter 16, over in verse 24, until now, he says, you've asked for nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, so that your joy may be made full. 
And what Jesus is getting at here, again, it's not a postscript. It's, it's asking in alignment. Asking in alignment. And it's also not something I try to generate every time I pray. Think about it this way. Do you line your tires every time you get in the car to drive somewhere? I mean, not unless you're Les Schwab. Les Dams doesn't even do that. You don't, you don't align the tires and then go for a drive. You know, the tires are already aligned. From time to time, they need realignment. But this is what I'm getting at. The Bible says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 37, verse four. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Why? Because if you delight yourself in the Lord, your heart is already aligned with him and you are already asking in his name. You are seeking what his name desires. You're seeking what is of the character of Christ in alignment with him. Good alignment will last. But even what you're doing tonight, this is about alignment. This is about getting our hearts in line with him, walking with him, understanding him, hearing him, trusting him. That's aligning your heart. So you don't have to worry about it. Get behind the wheel and drive. And asking in Jesus' name is just saying, Jesus, I want whatever you want. And by the way, that's why in the context of what he just said, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. He immediately follows that with verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Because the asking is in the love and commandments of Jesus. I'm asking in alignment and the heart that's aligned with Jesus is going to be obedient to Jesus. 1 John chapter 5, verse two, John says, by this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God, and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Jesus makes it very clear. I remember, I, I memorized this verse. It was one of the first verses I memorized when I became a Christian. When I had officially 10 years old, gave my life to Jesus. I was baptized. They gave me a little book that said, now that I'm a Christian. And I read that little book, you know. The big book kind of scared me still. But in that little book, there were different verses to memorize. And I remember, I, I memorized John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I would repeat that to myself and I'd walk around the house and I'd sit down at the dinner table. Rick, are you ready to eat dinner? Yes, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You know, I was just kind of hooked on that, a little obsessive compulsive. John 14, 15. And for years of my life, I thought I have to prove that I love him by keeping his commandments. And that is not what Jesus said. When he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. He makes it clear to love him is to obey him. He's not saying, obey me and therefore prove your love for me. He's saying, no, no, no. Your love is proven when you obey me. Your love is validated in your obedience that the proof of the love is in the obedience, but you don't obey to prove the love. Do you understand what I'm saying? I, I just, I love him, and because I love him, of course I'm gonna obey. Of course I'm gonna keep his commandments, which is why Jesus said, loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself, on this, the entire law and the prophets hinges. Just love him. If we're focused on keeping the commandments, we will fail miserably. If we're focused on loving him, the commandments are gonna be thrown in. We're gonna to want to obey. Continuing on, verse 19. No, 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 go back. Verse 16. I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now, verse 19. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. And in that day, you will know that I am in the Father. I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. I heard one pastor say, that's not a Beatles song. <laughs> he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. See, he just explained John 14, 15. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Jesus here 
is describing to the disciples and to you and me such a deep love relationship that is between Father, Son, Spirit, and believer. Father and Son, Son and the Father, you and me and I and you. This, this is a remarkable intimacy. This is beyond comprehension for us even. But he explains this is, this is how it works, that we're all wrapped up together in this marvelous, amazing, wonderful journey home. It's what he wants us to know. We're not in it by ourselves. When he says, do not let your heart be troubled, your heart is not alone. He's abiding there. He is dwelling there. Father, Son, Spirit. Spirit's alongside you. The Spirit is upon you. The Spirit is within you. I mean, we're, we're so wrapped up, we have no idea how, how overwhelming this is. And in a wonderful and quieting promise, Jesus says, verse 21, and I will disclose myself to you. I'll disclose myself. The word disclosed is emphanizo. Emphanizo, like emphasize. We will, he will emphasize his, himself, but it's more than that. Emphanizo means to make visible. It means intimately apparent and understandably known. I will disclose myself to you. Connie, I'm gonna disclose myself to you, Jesus says. Jake, I'm gonna disclose myself to you. Judy, Jesus is saying to you, I will disclose myself to you. I can say all your names, but we're not gonna go there. Second Corinthians 4, 6, God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. I will disclose myself to you so that you can know me. So let me ask you tonight, maybe just think about this. Don't, don't shout it out or speak it aloud. What of himself has Jesus disclosed to you lately? Don't tell me a Bible verse that you've memorized. What has Jesus told you about himself? What's something recent that you can say, wow, I realized this about Jesus. You know why you realized it? He disclosed it to you. What has he disclosed to you lately? It's not information. No, verse 21, it's self-disclosure. And it's so specific and so obvious that in verse 22, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? It's a great question. Judas, not Iscariot. Wouldn't you love to have that name? <laughs> All the rest of his life. Judas, not Iscariot. You know, just call me J&I. Judas not Iscariot is known by another name in the Bible. In fact, the first, the earliest two gospels don't even refer to him as Judas at all. They call him Thaddeus. Thaddeus, one of the 12. In Matthew chapter 10, verse three, and Mark chapter three, verse 18, he's Thaddeus, maybe to distance himself from Judas Iscariot. It's entirely possible that known by everybody as Judas, Thaddeus did quickly switch back to his, his name of Thaddeus and said, don't call me Judas. Don't call me, I don't want to be Judas, not Iscariot the rest of my life. Thaddeus. In Luke chapter six, verse 16, he's known as Judas, son of Jacob. So Luke's coming along and giving a more specific, no, that, that, you were called Judas, bro. Judas, son of Jacob, Thaddeus. But to bear the name Judas after what happened here, I'd change my name. I wouldn't be, I was watching the, okay, I, I confess to you all, I was watching Seinfeld the other night, old Seinfeld rerun, and the character of Elaine was dating a guy named Joel Rifkin, who was, that was the exact name of a mass serial murderer in New York at the time. And she kept trying to get him to change his name. That was the whole arc there. Judas Iscariot, Judas, anyone, and Judas was a very common name. Can you imagine that that's, you're one of the 12 and there's Judas Iscariot and Judas son of, you know, of, of Jacob. And then Judas Iscariot does this and you're like, I don't want to be known by this. And so I wonder if that's why he just went with Thaddeus. But I also wonder this. I wonder if he ever made peace with his name Judas. I'm not talking about Judas Iscariot. I'm talking about Judas son of Jacob, Thaddeus. Did he ever make peace with that name? Did he ever finally just say, you know what? That was the name that was given to me and the reason I ask the question is 
Is your name connected to bad things? Is there stuff in your past? People who have heard your name, call your name, know your name, immediately connect your name to the things that you used to do? Is it a troubled and sinful past that has your name on it? And the question then that follows is, have you made peace with that? Well, how can I make peace with that? There's only one way to do it. Bear the name of Jesus. If you bear the name of Jesus, your name, now you're gonna get a new name. Revelation tells, he tells us that in the letters to the churches. I'm gonna give you a new name. I can't wait to hear what my name is. It's gonna be something awesome. You know, right now, Chris's name for himself, he's, he's in soccer and he wants on the back of his journey, he wants Mr. Cool Jr., which I think is great. Yeah. <laughs> that makes me Mr. Cool, right? What's my name gonna be? I don't know, but I'll tell you what, right now, tonight, I can tell you, he has redeemed my name. That everything I ever did that was sinful or wrong or that I was known for doing that was sinful or wrong, and by the way, yes, I gave my life to Jesus at 10, but I was known for doing some sinfully bad things way after that. But all of that, my name has been redeemed. I have the same name, but it's a name that I can claim because I bear the name of Jesus. I'm a Christian. It was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christian, Acts eleven twenty six. He redeems our names. So, Judas, not Iscariot, he, in essence, comes along now and, and he asks this question. He says, Lord, what then has happened that you're going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world. I don't understand about this self-disclosure and why all of a sudden, what's he asking here? He's saying, why are you gonna be seen by us and not the world? Judas, not Iscariot, is still thinking kingdom now. He's still thinking the whole thing is supposed to lead up to you known all over the world as the king. So what's happened that now you're just, we're gonna know, but no one else is gonna know you. This doesn't make sense. He's confused by it. He's not understanding it. Shouldn't the world know that you're the king? Why the sudden secrecy? Now, Judas, not Iscariot, could have thought back to what Jesus commanded them in Matthew chapter 10, verse 27, when he said, what I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. What you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. See, the problem which Thaddeus, Judas not Iscariot, has that has him apparently confused is the whispers in the dark. What's happened that you're gonna disclose to us that we're gonna hear the whispers in the dark? What, What has changed? What is it that sets off this different kind of self disclosure than they had known for three and a half years? And I'll tell you, it's the same exact thing that set off or sets off the greater works that they will do. Look back at verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater than these he will do because I go to the Father. And that's the key. That's the key to what even, to the, the, this is what I would call the pivotal point. Because I go to the Father. Six to seven times in this upper room discourse, Jesus will talk about, will speak of his going to the Father. I'm going to the Father. And both the greater things that his followers, all of his followers would do, and this intimate self-disclosure that he will only give to his followers, these two things were triggered by his departure. You know what that means right now? It means that greater things than these you will do because he's gone to the Father. And this self-disclosure, he will disclose himself to you, is promised to you and to me now because he has gone to the Father. He said in Luke 24, 49, behold, I am sending forth the promise of the Father upon you. But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power, dunamis, power from on high. Acts chapter one, verse eight, Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. But that power wasn't for parlor tricks or thrills. 
That power, look, look at it this way. In just the first 30 years of the church, in the first 30 years of Christianity, literally more than a million people came to faith in Jesus. In 30 years. That's huge. All the way down into Africa and across Greece to Rome and it reached to Europe and beyond, people were giving their lives to Jesus. And that has continued unabated for 2,000 years. Greater things? 2,000 years of faith, hope, and love? 2,000 years of self-disclosure to his followers that is borne out in our love and our doing in the world? The greater things than these? Did you know that to this day, 2022, in sub-Saharan Africa, 20,000 new believers are coming to Christ every day. Every day. 20, 000, you, those statistics are correct. Right now in Asia and Africa, it is moving faster than anywhere else in the world. Christianity. The, the move of, of Jesus. By 2050, and I can't even imagine we'll be here by 2050, but for the sake of, you know, statistics, it is estimated by 2050 that 50.4% of the entire Christian population in the world will be in post or non-Christian countries. Now on the one side, you might go, oh, the darkness but on the other side, I go, you just can't stop it. You just can't stop the move of the spirit. You cannot stop the propagation of the gospel. You cannot stop the light that yes, in fact, pushes back against the darkness. How is that kind of growth in inhospitable countries even possible? It's been that way since day one. And here's how it's possible. Look at verse 16 one more time. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever, the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. And through the spirit, Jesus discloses himself to his followers. Down in verse 25. These things I've spoken to you while abiding with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he'll teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And then Jesus says, peace I leave with you. But skip over to chapter 15, verse 26. John 15, 26. He says, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. Look at chapter 16, verse seven. I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The trigger, his departure. His departure is the trigger of the greater things. It's the trigger of the self-disclosure. It's the trigger of the Holy Spirit coming. He says, and he, verse eight of chapter 16, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me and concerning righteousness because I go to the Father, he says again, and you no longer see me and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative. Whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. And he will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose to you all the things the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. The helper, the Holy Spirit. Helper is parakletos, comforter, counselor, advocate, encourager. And I just blaze through those passages because just so you know ahead of time, Lord willing, we're gonna take four Sundays and we're gonna go through each one. And we're gonna pause and consider the work of the helper, the parakletos. I'm calling it paraclete promises and we're gonna do four Sundays on them. But for now, for now, I want you to remember one thing tonight and we're gonna stop. One thing. The context of everything that we have talked about 
and everything that Jesus has said thus far, it's about following him in quiet trust. It follows and it, it balances around the phrase, do not let your heart be troubled. And this is how. This is how we do it. This is how we live this untroubled life. That's the context. And the only way I know uh, 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 of the only way I know of to, to actually do that, to not let my heart be troubled, is to keep coming back to him. I spoke of alignment, to keep coming back for that realignment, to keep praying, to keep in his word, to keep surrounded by other followers and other believers, to stay with it. Because as I said of the supernatural things, hey, you will not arrive at perfect peace, shalom, shalom in this life. You're not gonna arrive there. We're gonna be at peace. We're gonna know quiet trust. We're gonna have confidence in Jesus, but not to the level we will when we get to our rooms. Until then, as our rooms are being prepared, we press on. We continue on. We keep coming to Jesus again and again, and it doesn't matter if you're 17, 47, 57, or 89. You keep coming to Jesus over and over. You listen to Jesus. You put quiet trust in Jesus and you do not let your heart be troubled because you believe in God. You believe also in me. And Jesus says, and I'll get you home. I'll get you home. Father, so much to think about tonight and so much in your word. It's just, it's just profound to me. It excites me. To, to be reminded yet again tonight of your self-disclosure. To be reminded yet again tonight that we can do greater things. We can, we can love, we can propagate love around the world in a way that you couldn't do limited by one body in one place. That we are part of this remarkable, wonderful thing. In fact, Lord, we talked about heroes of the faith earlier. We get to be heroes of the faith. Because heroes of the faith are just people who give their lives to you. And so I thank you so much that you loved us to include us and involve us. And I pray, Father, now for our fellowship to have perseverance, not troubled hearts, but quiet and trusting hearts, believing in you to do everything that you said you'd do and ultimately to get us home. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your word to us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.